Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is demand planning in VUCA times with my friend Ali Raza. So this is a little different format today, guys, because Ali Raza is not with me live here. Ali Raza and I did do this topic as a webinar. So I'm going to give a little prelude here, and then I'm going to switch over and connect you to that webinar audio. So everyday supply chain practitioners must make big decisions that impact their company's bottom line. And it, it and it's it's a huge decisions. Unfortunately, even in the age of information, supply chain professionals, they must make those big decisions with limited information. We have more information than ever before, but in some ways it just makes it more difficult because it's siloed information. It's old, it's dirty, it's not available. But even if we had all this great information, it doesn't mean I can pull from all these systems and go, oh, this makes it real clear what my decision should be. If anything, it just makes it more confusing. So on the best day, it's difficult. But now we're in VUCA times. And gosh, I know I say VUCA too many times on my podcast, but I think it's perfect to describe where we're at today. VUCA stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. It's what we're living with. And so decision-making becomes even more difficult, maybe impossible to make the best decisions for our, for our companies during VUCA times. So there is a better way to make decisions. And ultimately, that's what we're all trying to do, make better decisions. It doesn't matter if we're talking about trucks. It doesn't matter if you're talking about tomatoes sauce. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. We all have to make better decisions regarding demand planning and also capacity planning. So I did a webinar recently with Ali Raza, the the founder, CEO of uh, Throughput. I'm going to connect you to that uh, audio in just a second. But before I do that, I'll just say Ali is brilliant at this stuff. So he created a company to help us make better decisions. And he can he has a, a tool, throughput tool, that uses all of the information that's in your supply chain already, pulls it into a system. He, they use AI to run a, a, a number of scenarios and then say, here's the best decisions for you. So rather than you struggling to try and interpret all the siloed, dirty, old information you have, let throughput take that information, bring it into their black box and make better decisions. They're not making the decisions for you. They're going to make recommendations. You ultimately make the decisions. So please take a listen to that webinar. And also before I should go, uh, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Demand Planning in VUCA Times. And that is with Ali Raza. Ali Raza, please introduce yourself and your company. Well, thanks, Joe. And thanks for everyone to show up today. My name is Ali Raza. I'm the founder and CEO of Throughput. At Throughput, we do a lot of supply chain orchestration. Bottlenecks are very popular now in the news. We sort of started that brigade about five years ago. And before us, there was Ali Goldratt, who did it 40 to 50 years ago with the book, The Goal. And so we currently are focusing on all sorts of issues in the supply chain. My background is I started off as a chemical engineer, but I was working for oilfield operations. And one of my assignments actually involved managing 
evacuating people out of Yemen during, you know, the, uh, I think it's 2015 during the Saudi invasion. And so I had to deal with day-to-day issues around managing inventory, moving stuff offshore, onshore, lift off the coast of Dubai on a ship for 11 months as well. And, you know, every, everything that you wouldn't expect that would happen pretty much happened, right? So I'd have, I would get calls on Saturday morning saying, hey, they just launched a rocket at the rig. Can you can can you come figure out what's going on? And so that was VUCA, right? So VUCA is more popular now as a term, but for a lot of the military people, they're probably wondering why we're even talking about this because this is sort of the day-to-day stuff they do from that perspective. And throughput's just an extension of that, right? We do a lot of work with very complex supply chains, helping them understand that if you solve the demand part early, if you actually move and make with sales, that's half the battle for what we can achieve right now, because it's very hard to reorient supply chains right now, especially with all the issues with the port. So I'll turn it over back to Joe. Yep. So I think I put some of this on LinkedIn and probably some of you already saw this, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think it's worth stating is supply chain practitioners are kind of the heart and soul of companies and they're responsible for making big decisions, decisions that ultimately decide whether you're going to make money or lose money. And that is a ridiculously difficult task given the information sometimes is dirty, sometimes it's old, sometimes it's not available at all. And so we're always finding ourselves guesstimating, making educated guesses. And let's face it, we do a pretty good job. Most of the times the shelves are full and none of us are losing weight during the pandemic. These are all good things. But it's not easy and it's not getting any easier. And, you know, Ali mentioned VUCA, time, VUCA, VUCA times. VUCA stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And I, I mentioned it to uh, Ali uh, probably six months ago that I read, I was listening to a book about Navy SEALs and they mentioned it. I thought, oh my God, that's exactly what we're going through. I looked up the term. It's actually a business term from the 80s. But then the military glommed onto it and said, oh, my God, this is what we're dealing with in so many situations, VUCA. (laughs) So and then as a supply chain or logistics folks, we live with that. And really what Ali's talking about today, it doesn't matter if you sell trucking services or you make luggage. It doesn't matter if you're a farmer. It doesn't matter what your business is. Aligning supply and demand is really hard on a regular day. In VUCA times, it's almost impossible. So your two cents on that before we move on here, Ali. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of planning systems out there and, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into putting in every single input that you can think of to make the most accurate crystal ball model, right? But when it comes to real-time responses, what you see is operations ends up overriding it with their spreadsheets and making the phone calls and and, uh, you know, the walkie-talkie messages on the ground and all that stuff. So I've been an operator to P&L manager, right, for two countries. So I've seen almost every level of being the person on spreadsheets and on, on the field and ordering 200% of what I actually needed to being the planner at the top and saying, hey, like, this is going to impact my working capital bonus. So, hey, guys, like, please don't order like a thousand more like air filters or something, right? So it is right. it is very challenging, but there are ways to deal with it in the short term, especially when it's very noisy. You have to focus on what you can control, right? And make it simple and uh, focus on what the customer does really want. And there is data today that can help you make those decisions. And then there's toolkits out there. We work with partners that can do everything from the SNOP process, from a bottoms up and top downs approach that can help. But it all comes down to what operations needs at that time. 
Yep. So, Ali, I'm going to read you. This is right out of the, just right out of the supply chain book. This is what demand planning is. Demand planning is a supply chain management process that enables a company to project future demand and successfully customize company output, be it toilet paper, laptops, or truck capacity, yeah. according to those projections. So, the typical, and again, I won't mention their names, but it's a company we would all recognize. This is this is what they would say is the the uh, demand planning process. So I'm going to say it, Ali, and then I want you to tell me what's wrong with it. <laughs> so first, the first step, number one, collecting, organizing, and preparing data. Number two, creating a preliminary forecast. I think we've all done that. Integrating market data. I think that's saying, hey, we seem like it's a 5 or 10% growth over last month. During the pandemic, that was difficult, obviously. Next, reconciling bottom-up and top-down. Bottom-up is kind of what you're hearing from the market, I think. And I think top-down is what the boss told you you have to sell this month. And then last but not least, creating a final forecast and at the same time, using analytics to monitor the forecast versus actual. Where does that go wrong? Well, in VUCA times, the biggest thing is nobody really has any time to do every step of the way, right? And they just you just don't iterate fast enough through those five or six different cycles. And the other thing with demand plans and of course demand forecasts, it's it's your viewpoint of the world, right? It's not looking at the overall supply chain and looking at what does the customer actually want versus what the actual supplier lead times are. So there's a lot of assumptions that are made, right? And as you make more assumptions and more assumptions and more assumptions along the way, you pretty much have biases built into your own demand forecasts, right? And so uh, that's what we end up picking up, which is, you know, it's more of an it's more of an art still than a science. But right. if you look at and you start being very honest in terms of what the customer actually wants, often by just asking them what they want, right, or tying into their actual demand data and tying it to your real supply chain lead times data, or just at least 99% approximations, it's a better way of doing business and turning over and just understanding and segmenting it down to the nth level is valuable, but understanding what you can sell in any environment, right, is sort of the key for successful companies that are able to be profitable during this eco, these, these, I guess, times, right? But also for the companies, there are companies that actually grow in these environments as well and capture market share. And that all comes down to the demand planning, right? Which is, most people don't realize how much power the supply chain really has, right, in the in the corporation. Supply chain has always been looked at as a cost center, but just with real world experience, right, when I was running oil food operations, I realized that I could basically make the P&L go up or down based off of two or three decisions, right? So that's real power that I think supply chain, because it's always been so uh, localized and put into its own little bubble, has never had that view up, right, that th this our decisions around ordering stuff or our underestimates or overestimates can actually lead to uh, big, big consequences for the earnings per share of a company. Yep. So it's interesting, Ali. I'll just use an. I'll ask you to go through an example. So let's just talk about toilet paper. We all know toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic had some shortages, and I think some of that shortages was as a result of maybe the sh the shift from. If you're a toilet paper manufacturer, making a lot of one ply for industrial and commercial, and then the home market is more likely to have the cushier toilet paper. And all yeah. of a sudden, people are going to the store and buying out a, a year's worth of toilet paper for themselves because they're afraid this is end times and I'm going to have a I'm going to have toilet paper with nothing else. So if you're let's just say a traditional guy and you don't have a wonderful tool, and I don't have Ali Raza on my staff, 
How were things, how were people making those decisions? I could look at historical data and say, normally we sell this much toilet paper in March, but this isn't normal. What is the thought process? And also for the, uh, the retailer. Gotcha. One of the things that we were hoping not to become uh, last year in the pandem pandemic is the world's toilet paper supply chain experts. Like we had so much coverage on we what care. we thought about what was going on with toilet paper that throughput and uh, and so forth. So, but yeah, you know, the, the biggest challenge with the demand forecast is, okay, there's there's certain surge in like, hey, we need 10X toilet paper everywhere, even though there's no way to consume toilet paper that fast. But what, what we were able to show to a lot of our customers is like, hey, even though there's a 10X surge in the market, you've never had the capacity to make more than 2X toilet paper. So even though this is a gold rush of toilet paper, you can't do it. Your job is to make sure whoever you're selling to right now is you're making money on it. You are uh, managing uh, the all the disruptions and so forth, and you're running and being profitable and not getting too greedy with the with the opportunity, right? So, how a basic uh, group could make this without a tool like throughput? Say you're not working with one of the largest paper companies in the world. You can basically look at your capacity and say, you know, realistically, we've never been able to fulfill this much, and realistically, the customer at the max has probably bought this. And those approximations are good enough for us to get started, right, as a benchmark, and then slowly add capacity if we think that we this is going to continue or just capture enough of that opportunity without risking the kitchen sink and the, and the farm on it, right? So if I had, let's just say, you just talk about what's traditional. Now, what let's just say I was using throughput for that. What what would be different now? And 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 I know you're taking data. So what? Please talk about the different data sources that people are using and tell how you would do use that information differently. Yeah, first of all, it's it's the data people understand, right? So what we what's great at throughput is we have people that can pretty much solve any supply chain problem on earth, right? It just, just comes through our advisory network and our partners that we work with and are very deep into this domain. But typically, what, the way we start is we say that you got to figure out what to sell first, right? Which is what can you actually make and move that makes you money profit or market share, right? And what we're able to essentially do from that perspective is go in and say, I need your sales and purchase data. And we need to segment the demand down to the customer product service mix to figure out what is going to get you the most revenue, profitability, and in some cases, market share, right? And that's sort of the starting point to fixing the supply chain or get, gathering the opportunity, right? There's a lot of waste in the supply chain with some of our customers 30% of the products that they actually start with don't actually get to the end customer. And these are big, big industrial companies like, you know, cement and glass and steel and all these guys where, you know, you can actually just by moving and making the right stuff and selling that, you end up freeing up a lot of the capacity as a byproduct, but you actually impact the bottom line. So the way we explain it to our customers is, Yes, supply chains are messed up, but this is no time to perform heart surgery or cardiac bypass, right? You are super clogged up in the arteries, but what we can make sure is we make sure that the red blood cells are essentially carrying enough oxygen, which is the stuff that actually your brain needs to function and your body needs to function. And that's fast, right? Demand sensing is sort of our get in the door. Let's do something within 90 days, get you an uptake in sales. And if you want to do all the re-engineering, we're happy to bring in all the partners on earth to do so, but the ROI is sort of diminishing right from there. Right. So getting back to, let's just say I'm that retailer and I'm, I'm, I have to order toilet paper for all my stores now and everybody's buying it out, right? So I could just say, just give me everything. 
Well, that's probably not the right. Every store says we're selling out. Just give me everything, right? Yeah. I want to make sure, and, and maybe that's too easy a problem because it is all going to sell. Whatever I'm making, I can sell. But this is, the, this is, I think, the interesting thing about what you've talked about is we have incomplete data sets. And then we as humans, we look at this data and some of it's straightforward, but we're bringing our biases to it. You're taking that information with throughput and using that data in a different way. What do you do with the data that allows you to make better decisions? And by the way, this is this is very simplistic. I told Ali I'm a, I'm a simpleton when it comes to uh, working with him. <laughs> we have a whole bunch of information, incomplete, but a whole bunch of it. And then it goes into a black box. We'll call that the throughput box. And then out, out of throughput comes recommendations on how to best make the most money, how to make the best decisions. And that's ultimately what we have to do as supply chain people, make better decisions. So what are you doing with that data? Talk about the data that people typically have and what you do with it. Yeah, I think that the problem is there's just too much data right now, right? People have invested so much money on generating our sorts of data systems, but fundamentally from an operational level, what you are doing is making and moving stuff, right? So you have to look at the data that is involved with moving stuff first, because that's easy, because the products are not changing from like a thousand widgets to a car, right? And then if you have further capacity, literally, you should look at the make, making data, the manufacturing data, or the, the shelf space data, where you get very nitty gritty, right? So what we essentially do is we say, we have to solve the problem downstream first, right? Which is at the retail level. The Japanese, of course, did this with Kanban, which is they focused on products that would sell, that allowed them to simplify their product mix. Our AI sort of works the same way from a different uh, perspective because it's timing it. It's figuring out which products should be sold at what time based off of seasonality and cyclicality. By optimizing your product mix first, right, and figuring out what you should be selling, simplifying it down to, hey, this is going to continue to make us money and it's worth our freight costs and et cetera. That's often the first step, which doesn't allow you to touch any other part of the supply chain, right? And that's why we start with demand segmentation, figuring out from a demand spectrum perspective, a variability perspective, and a lead time perspective, what we have the best shot at selling, right? And we maintain that, right? Now, there's, there's we basically look at, products in three categories. And I think you guys can as well, right? There's, there's these high value, you know, high value, good lead times, high demand products, right? Where you want to sell more of that because those are your big, big money makers. And then there's the products on the other end of the spectrum that are very challenging to sell, right? And then there's the middle guys and gals, right? Which is the ones that you have to predict when the surge is happening to increase the price and when to cut back when it's turning into a commodity item, right? You're not gonna sell cement when everyone else can offer the cement at the same price. And so that's what our demand sensing essentially does. It shows you how sluggish the supply chain is, which products to prioritize, and focus on that until you can get a better control of your supply chain and you're making money in the meantime. So, so I wanna touch on a few things before you go any further. So you mentioned some, I just did a podcast with Seth Page, also from Throughput, and he talked about 30% of what we create in this enormous supply chain of ours is waste, 30%. And right now, by the way, there was just, I just saw a, a research by Boston Consulting Group that said 80% of the waste, or I'm sorry, 80% of the emissions, greenhouse emissions, are from the supply chain. So there is gonna become increasing pressure on all of us in the supply chain to become more sustainable. It seems like the first thing I wanna do is stop making stuff that adds no value, meaning it never is used. 
Yep. Where is that? Is it stuck in the supply chain or is it finished goods? Is it what is that? Where's the waste? It depends on the, the country, right? Uh, if you're a manufacturing centric country, your waste will probably be in the manufacturing side. If it's supply chain, it's if you're more of a consumer economy. You see more of it on the retail and on the last mile side, right? So on food, right? Food is like a third of the stuff gets thrown off after, after we buy it from the, from the shelves, right? But if you're looking at say, and I don't want to call it industries, right? But if you're looking at building materials as a whole, building materials as a whole creates almost a 10th of the world's waste by itself, right? And so that's in their manufacturing process. Not, counting, not even counting the greenhouse gases that it contributes. Correct. Exactly. So, you know, I think transportation has a bad name, but there's worst industries. And now I'm getting specific with industries. But but that's that's the reality of the challenge, which you look at. I mean, supply chain essentially makes and moves the world, right? And if there's waste in that systems, A, there's an opportunity to ca capture carbon credits. And that's what the European countries are doing really well. But just not making stuff that doesn't sell right. saves every, a lot of time. Right. So that's that gets to skews. So I'm sure I'm sure virtually everybody in this webinar will say, I wish we had fewer SKUs to deal with. So yeah. how do we make the so we would all like to have fewer SKUs because that would make our demand planning and our capacity planning much easier. And you talked about those three buckets that you like to put things in. That's the demand. Do you, when you're working with customers, do, do some of them end up with reducing SKUs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we sometimes come in and customers are just hyper-focused on, let's just move everything to the end point on time and full, right? Everything will sell out. And we basically show that there's a lot of non-value at work here and you're losing margin by doing by trying to push products that don't make any money, right? But even further, the, the, biggest, the biggest problem is at bottlenecks. These are precious, critical areas you're using up non-value added capacity, right? Now, if you think of a bottleneck and say that's like the biggest choke point in your system, if 30% of the stuff going through that bottleneck is not making you money, it's basically affecting right. everything downstream, right? So either you optimize around the bottleneck and make sure you have 100% of value added stuff going through it, or you're just, you're, you're basically underutilizing a resource and you're creating a 30% loss in yield down the entire supply chain, right? Right. And by the way, that maybe I'll uh, step back for just a second. I've, I've said this before to Ali. I think I said that when I had him on my podcast. When I worked in, I'm an automotive guy, I did some lean supply chain work. So we were trying to lean out the supply chain and we were always trying to maximize throughput. And I joke about it, but it seemed as if you needed just almost a miracle to get the right people in the room to maximize throughput. And you mentioned Gold Rat and the goal. That whole book was about trying to make throughput accessible and and he did the best job that anyone could but it still isn't fully accessible when you talk about bottlenecks and trying to get rid of a bottleneck knowing you're just creating another bottleneck what we never talked about too much was are we making stuff that nobody needs yeah that will add no value that will i'm creating goods that i send to my customer and it maybe sits on their shelf and never gets used and granted, my boss is going to say it's still a sale, make it. But if it was a lower margin sale and I had a very difficult bottleneck, I'd waste going through it. It's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a, the big takeaway, right? Where people are fully convinced that if they make 5% more this year, they will sell more. And we go in with our demand segmentation model sometimes and say, if you actually make 20 million less this year, but you actually make more of what actually sells, you will have better margin and you'll have less 
whip built up in plastics and stuff that is waste and basically causing you fines for carbon credits, right? So right. the Japanese with lean and, you know, their Toyota basically like looked at it simple, moving towards single piece flow, which, you know, of course people want choice, but in some environments like VUCA, if you're a business, it's probably better to push products that will sell anyways, right? Rather than offering infinite choice, right? And this is something that we have been coaching our customers on with their SaaS dashboards, which is like, look, in the case, nobody has infinite, even if you have infinite demand, there's no way you can have infinite supply, right? You have to understand what that 99% of your capacity is. And based off of that, make your best bets in terms of what product to sell, right? right? There are some lost leaders in there that you might be trying to capture market share, but is this really the time to be trying to capture market share? That's your call, right? right. But there is a way to push higher purity through the supply chain. And I think that's what we are uh, focusing on just on looking at, at downstream, focusing on where the customer is. And we work with customers that have their own hardware stores, their own fashion retail stores, we, their own uh, supermarkets, right? So we sit on about 90% of the world's products right now and container port terminals, right? So we pretty much see everything for every customer, right? Uh, you name the company, I'm pretty sure I can point within our metadata and say, this is what's going on. And with no no lag, right? We can we can see what's going on in real time. But that's the biggest thing we found. It's just we have a very impure supply chain. When you say impure, say that again, so I understand that. What do you mean by that? Just that, that we're creating waste. It's waste. It's almost like dirty water, right? If you have 100% water that's clean and pure, you can drink it, right? But then if you have a little bit of muddiness in the water, right? That's actually it creates work for everyone along the entire supply chain, right? Like our big pitch to many of our CEOs and CFOs. So we exclusively now try to work with the guys and gals who care about the earnings per share of the company, because that's really what all supply chain is about, right? Getting that earnings per share up. We basically show them that, look, um, from a you know from a sales perspective and a capacity perspective, this is sort of your ideal situation in terms of right. what what to get towards. Yep. You mentioned grocery stores. And again, I think, you know, that, that, that has a lot of complexity to it. I mean, we have that the CPGs, the producers, right? Then we have the uh, first mile, which sends it to the distribution center. Then it, the middle mile is from the distribution center to the grocery store. And now we can talk about the final mile. Some like 20% of groceries will be delivered probably by the uh, next five years or so, they say. So you said this to me before, and I'm always kind of blown away. When I look at a retail location, if I was to go over to my local grocery store, what percentage of the stuff on the shelves is not profitable? Depends. On, I mean, grocery stores don't really make great margins, right? That Most people don't know about that, but in my wide majority, because it's a competitive business, but it depends on the product, right? We sit on dairy data that you know 50% of the stuff never actually makes it right and doesn't make money in some cases 30 percent on 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 average right uh, where you're not actually making money on the product some people are shocked right but the the mentality has always been the throughput mentality which is just get it there on time and full as long as it's on the shelf we'll take any money that we can but when we look and work backwards with our demand sensing module we realize that hey like 40 percent of the shelf space there is non-value added product right not enough turnover ties up cash too too long. And yes, there's choice, right? But what ends up happening is, right. yes, you make great money during a certain season and you don't cut it, you lose all the money the next quarter and then you have average margins, right? So timing yeah. is everything, right? In retail right now, and we, we're working on a very interesting use case where we think we've invented just-in-time discounting, right? Black Friday is coming up. What we basically found is customers tend to discount too early and they discount too much, right? And using data, you can prevent both. You can discount just at the right time. Uh -huh. 
See, but the, 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 when you say using data, and this is the good worst thing, Ali, if I, if you're a brilliant man, <laughs> I know that if I gave you all this data and you have all this experience, and I said, I'm, I'm taking away your, your mighty tool, you just do it just by hand. No AI, <laughs> no algorithms, no, no, no system. You couldn't do this. No, I would have ended up killing someone in, in a book in environment. It's, it's true. Right. Like, it's because when you're dealing with two countries, by yourself with uh, Excel sheets, with just procurement and supply chain looking up to you, you can, it's, it's very hard to pull off, right? And this is where mission readiness and all this is a totally different industry, but it's very hard to do. And there's just too much lag of information and communication between companies, right? right? So you, there's other tools that do that well. We have a webinar coming up soon where we'll be focusing on the SNOP side of things and how to make that more iterative. But it's just not it's not something you would do with a single, you know, a single spreadsheet would not run two countries. I've tried that. Right. right? But yeah, but just to make that case to the top is sort of the key as well. Right. right? Which is we need these planning tools, because if we're running 400 factories, I, I, I mean, we are literally we work with customers where there's three people sitting on some of the most critical choke points on Earth that if one of those guys go away, they could basically impact the entire world economy. Right. Right. But it's they're the only people who actually have those heuristics in their head, right? And it's right. it's just not not the way to do it. But anyways, the- I, I think I think when I go to like the grocery store and I see uh, like just say the, the average grocery store, I see I always use peanut butter as the example. There's 27 kinds of peanut butter. When I was a kid, there was peanut butter, and then yeah. when they introduced crunchy peanut butter, oh boy, that was like special, right? And yeah. then and then they said, oh, we're gonna have low fat, then we're gonna have almond butter, then we're gonna have all natural. And now there's not, instead of one choice, one peanut butter, there's 30, right? And so I think that's very sales driven. I think it's product development driven. We as consumers love it, but I think we as consumers ultimately are paying extra because a lot of the stuff that gets made isn't as profitable as it should be. And we as logistics and supply chain people, we're the tail. The dog decided to go this way and we just followed. So we need to be able to make that business case that, hey, boss, I'm not just bitching to be a pain in the butt here. I'm bitching because I don't think everything we're doing is profitable. I think it's the supply chain has become unwieldy and we've got to start taking our our input more seriously and start looking at what actually makes sense to build, to create. Yeah, absolutely. The cost is being passed on the consumer and you're uh, stressing out everyone in the supply chain, right? So having 30 30 types of peanut butter out there on the market might be great, but it also comes down to, you know, running, I mean, what part of the world you live in, if you live in a consumer economy, that's sort of expected, right? But there are literally countries in the world that they don't even serve peanut butter at the supermarkets, right? Uh, So that's sort of the catch. But is it? I mean, I go to the grocery store. That's I love Costco is probably my favorite store. I think Costco probably has one kind of peanut butter or yep. two, right? And Costco and Aldi and uh, I think Trader Joe's, I think Target, they have much fewer SKUs than the average grocery store and they don't seem to be hurting. Yeah, I don't want to come back to automotive, but I mean, you know, Toyota went through this tsunami in yes. 2011 and they basically learned this, that just in time is not about just you know, just in time inventory. It's about having the right buffers at the right place at the right time as well, right? So right. they did a wonderful job with finding suppliers that could keep them going, right? In any, so at any sort of scale, that's what you want to really run for, for as a business, right? Which is if I'm operating and pushing out 100,000 units of, a, of my products or a million units, 
am I still profitable based off of what I'm doing? And I think with just understanding your supplier lead times and better demand planning, you can actually scale it effectively, right? Where you right. don't risk as much. I could tell you this from a, I'm an automotive guy and I worked a lot in product development, product planning. And I remember the automotive companies here in Michigan, we were always kind of very sales focused. So we would make all sorts of different options. And I remember there was a lot of stats that said, theoretically, there are millions of different configurations. So you, you could say no car is the same as another car because they all had so much so much configured. Contrast that with what the Japanese do. They don't offer that many options. And who's better at manufacturing? Who's better at supply chain? Japanese. Well, and look at how many Toyotas we buy in this country, right? I mean, they literally offer you five choices and we and half you know half the world ends up buying a Toyota. What I have no idea why, but there's Look at at Tesla. Are they going to offer them a bazillion different options? They're going to do okay. I'm I'm sure that guy's going to be fine. (laughs) So anyway, Ali, if it's all right with you, I'd like to ask you to give a, uh, maybe give a little case study and then um, maybe we'll wrap this up in it if there's any questions. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's different verticals that we work with on demand sensing. What I'm finding across all sorts of countries and all sorts of verticals is it's often the easiest point to go in and take sales data and start breaking it down and understanding it from a seasonality, cyclicality perspective, what to go into. So I'll start with maybe shoes, right? Uh, Shoes is one of those situations where internationally, you have to wait for like Adidas and Under Armour to end up at, uh, say, a store in the Middle East, right? And just understanding the lead times and, and understanding the demand side is so important because by the time those shoes have actually shipped, and I think probably this time, they're going to take two years to get there besides a year because of how messed up supply chains are. Uh, the next the next version's already out, right? So by figuring out early which products are just hard to sell, you end up freeing up shelf space for next year, right? And say, hey, we're going to try a new product. This is huge for retail where you're always turning over fast and trying to figure out, okay, that didn't work. What do we do next year? Right. Um, this is where demand segmentation starts cleaning up what's on the shelf space, right? And it can get complicated because styles are hard to work with. It's big over there. So, you know, millions ended up saving in terms of products that just did not need to ship, right? Just from so, basic. So, so they reached out to you guys. And what was the, what was, what were they saying to you when they reached out? You know, just, just lead time. Everyone has supplier lead time challenges, right? And they need to make sure that whatever gets on the shelves sells, right? And they have great margin, right? I won't get into their actual margins, but just, by focusing on what doesn't need to sell, right? We were able to optimize down to the end product, right? And this is more of a, a better way of adding bottom line impact and true ROI rather than doing something very much point-based, right? So then this ends up scaling to all the, the stores and all the distribution centers and you end up uh, saving a lot of money, right? So that's one use case. That's more on the retail side. I also like the industrial side of things, right? So working with a customer that has their own hardware stores, if you can tie the hardware stores back to the raw materials, same challenge, right? Which is if you can show them that these items are not gonna sell, with industrial, a lot of those products have to come through mines and they have to go through really, really large uh, manufacturing processes, right? And it's the same problem, right? It's the same solution to the same problem. doesn't matter which industry you're in. Very basic, which is figure out what to sell, when, and then make and move that at the appropriate time. Throughput.ai software can get you there within 90 days, right? And if you want to do all the other optimization, well, you know, there's companies that can do that. We can do it. But I mean, you have to prepare for your next cycle. So freeing up capacity, the best way to create 
free up capacity, right? Is to figure out which products and need to move in your supply chain and which services, right? And which products don't need to move in your supply chain. Right. Yeah. It's it's again. I want to reiterate this, uh, Ali, that this this what you're talking about is very complex. But I think I got my buddy Seth Page here on the podcast and or on the podcast on the webinar. And one of the things I I love what he said is we have all these siloed information and sometimes it's incomplete. Sometimes it's not enough, not enough to make a decision, but we have to make a decision anyway. And then we we are processing that maybe ourselves, maybe with the team, and we're bringing all of our own biases. We're bringing our own lack of rational thinking and even the best of us, right? And so the outputs, the decisions, or the rec- recommendations for decisions are are flawed. And what you're saying that you can do with throughput is I have all these uh, the siloed inf- information. Some of the, some of it might be a little dirty. Some of it might be old. But you can take that information, run millions of different scenarios, and then make those recommendations. And it's going through logic that is is focused on how do I make more money? How do I make better decisions? And it's your data. It's not a simulation, right? That's sort of right. the key. It's, it's right. your data. It's telling you what your limits are from a capacity perspective. It's showing what your limits are from a sales perspective, right? So this was one of my biggest problems, which is one of the reasons why like demand planning, I just sort of st- took a step back from was because I would sit through sales and operations planning processes where we would spend two hours on a Friday saying, okay, we, we're going to do this next week on a Tuesday, it'd be out the window because it's a VUCA environment, right? right. So I basically said, well, Salespeople are optimistic. They want their bonuses. They're going to tell you that they can do 3x more sales. And operations people are technically skeptics and they'll say, no, we have technically we have half the capacity that you think we have, right? That's just not going to fly, right? Because I wanted to know, okay, what have we historically sold and what have we historically made and been able to do? And that basically helped me reduce the variance and say, hey, this is what we can we can realistically do, right? Operations, I can call them out on and say, hey, like realistically, we I know you guys can make this, right? And sales, even though you guys want to sell 3X, you're basically, you know, you're creating stress in operations where they're not going to be happy if you don't deliver. That Those data sets exist with everybody. That's your sales data. And you know what your capacity is, right? Whether it's down to the nth level on the machine right. or just we make 15,000 widgets a week, right? Most right. people have that. Now, if you want to scale up, we have the architecture that can get you up to something that you can present to the CEO of a company or the board of the company, Right. Because right. they don't have that, that view. They, they have that top-down understanding, but they need that bottom-up responsiveness, right? We can get that done and sort of bridge the gap. Yep. Anyway, so how do we reach out and talk to Ali Raza or Throughput? <laughs> yeah, feel free to visit our website, throughput.ai. We're always posting new stuff on there, right? We're always looking to bring in experts to help you understand the space better. People have been doing this for 20, 30 years, right? At every every scale. So that's what we're really about these days, right? Which is there's a lot of noise in supply chain. I may, This year, we made a conscious effort of reaching out to some of the people who are pioneers in this space, right? To understand what's going on with the market, who's offering what. I think there's a lot of solutions now, a lot of confusion, right? Sort of our part of helping out the community is pretty much finding, you know, just finding the signal from the noise. And so you can reach out to me at ali at throughput.ai. Very responsive on LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time there reaching out to CEOs and CFOs, but that's where we're headed, right? We have another webinar coming up in a couple of weeks, right after Thanksgiving around sales and operations planning at a local level and scaling that up. And, you know, just starting work now with our cyber with the Air Force. So more and more groups are starting to see how, 
big of a complex problem we can solve and we're excited for, for, for these times, right? Because supply chain wasn't hot four years ago when you know, we started out and we were showing that, hey, bottlenecks are gonna be the biggest problem on earth in four years and now we're there and we don't have any solutions that can actually fix supply chain really fast. Demand sensing is sort of that first step where we get people back in line so they're making enough money, have enough cash on hand before they go and do what they should have done 10 years ago, which is re-engineer the supply chain. Yep. And, and you know, Ali, there's, there was this idea of digital twins that was kind of thrown around out during the pandemic early on. I think Apple is one of those companies that creates digital twins. So everything happening in the real world has a digital twin. And the nice thing right. about that is you can do some scenario planning. Yeah. Well, that is really helpful at, at, during these VUCA times. I think what we're we're going to see before too long, we're going to have an end-to-end -end visibility connectivity on our supply chain from order to cash. And yep. we're going to want to be able to do some scenario planning. And this right here, I think, is is key to that. Visibility isn't for the sake of visibility alone. You know, you say, I can watch that slow motion train crash. That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't help me any. I want visibility so I can collaborate and make better decisions. And more importantly, not just have infinite scenarios, right? Some of the biggest problems with VUCA right. is people are just like, they're coming out with infinite scenarios, right? Which is <laughs> if a tree falls in the woods and then there's a bottleneck at the port of Los Angeles, then what happens to the temperature in Honduras, right? That's basically right. What, what planning is coming down to, where we're saying, realistically speaking, 99% of the time you've been able to do this, this is what you should prepare for. And this is what we used to do. We would prepare in war zones for everything we could imagine but was realistic right? right and and then that basically helped us prepare and run the supply chain yep well excellent ali this is uh always eye-opening and again I, I i really do feel this way is we have great data bet more data than we ever did before but we don't know what to do with it you said too much data and i think what we're realizing is we don't always have the ability to make great decisions just because we have the data we come up with our own biases and our own <laughs> our our own ideas that might not be right. And that's why we need a tool that helps us make better decisions. Yeah. People still have to run the supply chain at the end of the day, right? Regardless of the tools that we have, it's really the people who will continue to run operations, manufacturing, supply chain. We can help out with tools and solutions, but ultimately it's the people who make the company still. Yep. Well, thank you, Ali, and thank all of you for coming and checking out the pod. Or the I keep saying podcast. I mean webinar. Thank you so much yeah. for attending the webinar. And uh, feel free to reach out to me if you can't reach out to Ali. And but I'm sure he's available. You can reach me at Joe at the Logistics of Logistics. But uh, and I, I know I can reach out to Ali for you. Thanks for the questions. All right. All right. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.